This is Bo Buchanan, Arizona Lodge Number 2, and I'm here speaking on the level with Ronald Seal. Ronald, why don't you start out by giving me your full name, the name of your home Blue Lodge, and any offices or titles you have connected to that lodge. Sure. I am a past master of East Gate Lodge 452 in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm also a member of St. James Lodge 47 in Baton Rouge. And how long ago were you raised as a Mason? 1969, to the best of my recollection. Holy cow, so you've got your 50-year pittance. So just closing in on it, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, which slide were you raised at? Eastgate. Eastgate, okay. Uh, do you remember when you first heard of this thing called Freemasonry? Freemasonry has sort of uh, been a constant uh, in my family. So I was always around it. My dad was a very active Freemason. Uh, his father, which would have been my grandfather, was a Freemason. Uh, my dad had a number of brothers and sisters. So my uncles that I can particularly remember, uh, one, two, three of those men were Freemasons. Their adult children, which would have been my first cousins, were Freemasons. Wow. So I remember the occasion of my raising a number of those uh, men were there and participated. So I've always been around it. So did you join any of the youth organizations? I did. As a matter of fact, in, back in that day, in 1962, I joined uh, DMLA. You had to be 14 <coughs> uh, to join DMLA. So about they didn't have squires like they do today? No, they don't. So when I was 14, I went into DMLA and stayed active in DMLA until I was 21 and it was a natural progression into Freemasonry. You immediately joined Freemasonry? Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. I wish I had gotten involved so, so young. I have been in it for uh, uh, both through Malay and Freemasonry. Uh, I joined the Scottish Rite uh, the year after I was raised, so that would have been, I think, in the spring reunion in 1970 in Baton Rouge. The Shrine shortly thereafter and then I probably waited, I'm, I'm guessing, maybe five years before I took my York Rite degrees. You did all the attendant bodies? Did all, yeah. <laughs> Any of the older, like the grottos or anything like that, did you get did into? did not get involved in the grotto. Okay. No. <laughs> and there was the ancient or redmen, the tall? No, I didn't do any of that. Any of those, no. okay. Um, so what was it, I mean, obviously you had a big family connection to masonry, but what was it that drew you in? on a personal level, I mean, sometimes when our dad and our family does something, we want to do just the opposite, just because we're men and we're stubborn. I think, I think it was seeing how much uh, Masonic membership meant to my dad. Uh, he was an active Freemason. He chose to, to expend most of his labor in the Scottish Rite, but he was active in his blue arch. He never went through the chairs and became master of his blue arch, but it was something that he was always very, very proud of and engaged with, and it was just a natural progression for me to do. Uh, being in Demolay and having leadership roles in there and being exposed to the concept of a ritual organization with degrees and all of that, that Freemasonry also was just a natural attraction. You, when, what year were you uh, Worshipful Master? 1987. 1987. Tell me about that year. Was there a, that was a big leadership role. It's a, it's a big uh, honor to be Worshipful Master, and usually the Master has some things he's trying to accomplish. What was that year like for you? 
We had a, we had a very good lodge, uh, Eastgate Lodge, which is still uh, in existence and active. Uh, had a cross section of people. We had uh, some men that were uh, in the professions, lawyers, doctors, college professors. We had a lot of uh, working men, or I would say men that actually worked for a living, uh, uh, a lot of tradesmen. Uh, we had a lot of, as a lot of lodges, particularly in the South, do. We had uh, a lot of law enforcement. Uh, people, uh, firefighters, so it, it was a broad spectrum of the community, which was a good thing. Uh, some of those men uh, would come to lodge after a hard day's work, would come just right after got off work to lodge. So it was not, and I don't mean this in a disparaging way to other lodges, but it was not a tuxedo lodge. I mean, it was just a good group of men that were very active. They had uh, some charitable and civic service projects. Uh, we did things outside of the actual lodge meeting nights. We had like a breakfast club that would meet on Friday mornings at uh, 7 a.m. at a local restaurant just to sit and uh, have eggs and bacon and talk about the upcoming ball games and the, uh, the weekend. It was just men that enjoyed being together. Uh, the lodge was very interested in education at that time, so we did a lot of in-service uh, education things for, for members of the lodge, but that's primarily what it was. Can you think of any, <clears throat> uh, any of your favorite memories from that time in your lodge, uh, whether it be an event or a charity or anything you did? Uh, <clears throat> being asked off the cuff right now, not particularly, just the whole year was good. What was it, what was it like when you, so you transitioned, you're, you're in the Scottish Rite, you're the big dog as I like to say. What, what was that transition like? When did you start becoming part of the southern jurisdiction? Uh, I was active in Scottish Rite again from the time that I, that I really entered in 1970 because that was where my dad had worked so much. Right. And, in our community at that time, most of the men that you saw in the community were members of the Scottish Rite. By that meaning, the uh, uh, I was a, a, a budding young lawyer at that time. A lot of the judges, a lot of the other uh, attorneys that I met with on a uh, in a professional setting. You would also see them at the Scottish Rite reunions. Oh. I think I was drawn also to the Scottish Rite again from my De Malay experience. The drama, the intensity of the degrees, the, the play acting, the smell of the grease paint, the roar of the crowd kind of thing. And so I, I think it was just a natural progression for me. I was not active in Scottish Rite so much as far as going to the meetings and being like in the administrative side of it, but I had parts and degrees and would participate in reunions, and it was just a, it was just a good progression for me. And what's your current title now in Scottish Rite? Sovereign Grand Commander of the Supreme Council of the Southern Jurisdiction, USA. And tell me a little bit about what, what's your role, what do you do? The uh, Sovereign Grand Commander essentially functions as the CEO 
chief executive officer of the Supreme Council of the Scottish Rite. Uh, also is the chief judicial officer of the Scottish Rite and represents the Supreme Council when it's not in session. And uh, you also you also do some writing as well, don't you? Not that much. I mean, I write for the magazine. I'm, I write the Grand Commander's articles that are in the uh, Scottish Rite Journal, which is the publication of our southern jurisdiction. But as far as doing books and treatises, I don't. You don't, okay. And is there anybody that has stood out to you as kind of a, a role model in masonry that you've kind of looked up to or has had a big impact on your career as a mason? Oh, gosh, yes. I mean, there, there are so many uh, that I could name. Certainly my dad would be one that would uh, would certainly uh, be prominent uh, in my memory. Uh, there are other men uh, that I remember uh, as a young Mason that were encouragers of me, that uh, facilitated my taking parts in degrees and getting, uh, getting active in doing those things. Uh, uh, several men that were grandmasters uh, in our state that were uh, very much a role model. But even more so, there are role models today that I look up to and that I am inspired by because I see what they're doing. Uh, not the least of which, Bo, is like what you're doing with this project. You know, here you have somebody that is involved in Freemasonry in his state and in his town that is interested in preserving the history. Uh, and the engagement with some of these men that you have met and making that available for, for those that will come, come afterwards. When you see people that have an energy and a passion and an enthusiasm for Freemasonry, I mean, those people are every much as mentors to me as people that I met when I first started. So you mentioned before that one of the reasons you got involved was because of the, the good men you saw and you dealt with. And one of the things we, we like to say in masonry is uh, we take good men and make them better. I always like to ask the question, has masonry made you a better man? You would probably have to ask other people, <laughs> but I would hope so, yes, <laughs> because uh, I don't think anybody achieves perfection in in their time here on earth and whether you find uh, the goal that you are striving for uh, through Freemasonry, through the lessons, through the teachings, uh, certainly through your house of worship, your synagogue, your church, your mosque, whatever it may be, Masonry holds out a standard for men to achieve to in their life. So many of our degrees teach profound moral teachings. And one of our shortcomings, quite frankly, uh, in Scottish Rite and, and probably in craft masonry too, is, is we present something like the Master Mason's degree 
some of the dramas of the Scottish Rite, some of the degrees in the York Rite, uh, put forth profound teachings of morality. And because of our membership requirements, we tend to rush people through these experiences. And sometimes if, if, if a Mason has completed the master's degree, he, or, or one of the Scottish Rite degrees, he becomes so enamored with the external trappings of this that I now have an apron, or I have a ring, or I have a cap, or yeah. I've just simply got a title, and now that I've done this, I can get on to the next one. It sometimes takes years of study and reflection like to consider, what does this have to do with me? What this drama that I just saw witnessed and, and played out, how, how do I mine anything out of that and put it into my life? And into my look, look at the at the world as it stands now, with so many of the conflicts and turmoils that you see in current day's news. And yet we go and, and confer something in Scottish Rite uh, in our 18th degree, and the whole themes are uh, light over darkness, good over evil. How can the two coexist? What will ultimately triumph? And if a man like yourself or myself sees that, and we can't process that, if what you see in the large room, you can't square with what you see on the news channel on television, the initiation, though, takes place not when you walk through the ceremony, but when your mind spins it and you get it in your heart. And connect the dots. <clears throat> and that's when you are really the, quote, master of that degree and that lesson and perhaps are prepared to move to the next. I don't know what you asked me, but that's a good answer. <laughs> I don't need it, but it was a good answer. Anything, uh, what would you say to either curious men or young Masons who might be listening to this in 50 or 100 years? I would hope at that time, because of what you and I are doing now, that Freemasonry still holds the same promise for them that it has held for us in our day. That there was something about entering a Masonic Lodge that captured our attention. And there was something there among that group of men who dared to call themselves brothers and to, to essentially pledge their, their uh, fidelity and loyalty to one another, that that kind of a bond holds a value that helps a man navigate his life on earth and that you and I would hope together that 50 years from now, that promise would also be to the next generation that would seek and come and knock at our door. Well, thank you very much for taking time to me to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you.